0: Would you please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 5, Psalm 5. This psalm should be a balm for our souls. It should give us so much hope. It should give us peace. It should give us a holy boldness because it shows us the attitude of God toward the wicked. And it shows us that there is protection for those who take refuge in Him. Let's look to the text, Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. In their mouth, their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray asking that you hear us. We ask that you would hear and respond, giving us what we ask according to your will. We don't ask because we demand or deserve an answer. We ask because you have told us to, and according to your promises, we expect you to answer. Oh, Father, give us wisdom to understand your word. Give us understanding, and by your Spirit, because of your Son, Jesus, apply it to our hearts. And by this understanding, change us. Change us, Lord, mold us into the image of your Son by your grace. We pray for those here and those hearing this in other places that don't know you. For those who do not know you yet, Lord, grab onto them now and do your work. Take them by the heart and overcome them and persuade them until by the very faith you give them they come into your kingdom. Bring many sinners to yourself, even this morning, Father, for your glory. Father, I pray as for myself as I preach, that I, w- I would only preach what is helpful, what is beneficial for your people. That you would, by your word, even as I preach, strengthen those who hear and even strengthen me as I preach. For your great glory and the salvation of souls, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a tendency, no, an instinct I think probably bred into me over the course of many generations of conflict avoidance. This means that not only do I hate interpersonal conflict, but with, with myself and someone else, but even as a, by, as a bystander, if there's conflict of any sort, my instinct is to crawl into a hole and stay there until the bombs stop going off. God has graciously given me boldness for the gospel and teaching. But I am by nature never looking for a fight and get nervous when other people are. All that to say these last several weeks and months have been trying, as I assume they have been for many of you. It seems as, what, as, as though everyone in the entire world has lost their ever-loving mind and is looking to pick a fight. It almost doesn't even matter what the fight is about. From, it could be from politics to family matters to the church to the best way to handle a viral outbreak. And I just want it to stop. Some of the fights are pointless because there is no right answer and no, about, no amount of debate will change that. Some are just dumb, the equivalent of fighting about the, closet, the, the, the color of a carpet in a closet. Other fights are worth having because the truth is worth defending. And Psalm 5 is a wonderful reminder that in this case, running and hiding is not the right thing to do. Of course it isn't, but what is the right thing to do when it seems as though the world is spiraling down and the enemies of God, those who are in open rebellion against Him are coming into view from every angle? To be clear, I am speaking of the rebellion of the moral insanity of the sexual revolution along the whole spectrum. The horror of the culture of death that demands human autonomy to the extent that ending a life in the womb or in old age or sickness, they want this to be no more significant than the choice of cereal we choose to eat in the morning. I'm speaking of denying the dignity of marriage either by easy divorce or demanding the celebration of so-called same-sex marriage. I'm speaking of of denying the importance of having a mother and a father raising children together in the same house while married to each other. I'm speaking of the government declaring strip clubs and liquor stores essential during a time of pandemic. But churches gathering to worship the living God in obedience to Him and His commands not essential. I'm speaking about the slaughter of Christians in Nigeria or their oppression in China and many other places across the world. This is heavy stuff. If we had, and if we have a faulty or small view of God, it could be overwhelming. It could make us despair. It could make us scared not to go anywhere or do anything. If God is not sovereign, we have no hope in the face of all of this. If God is not sovereign, in absolute control of all things, we are doomed to whatever the strongest wickedness, be it from the right or left, Whatever is strongest at the moment, with no hope of anything good, except what little pleasure we can grab on uh, on our way to the grave. But God is sovereign. He is on the throne. He is in absolute control of all things. And there is nothing, and I mean nothing, from the smallest molecule to the largest galaxy outside of His sovereign rule. And this rule, this truth, stretches from eternity past to eternity future. And so because of this, because of God's sovereignty and providence, fear is not the right response. And neither is denying that anything is the matter. We face real issues. We face real threats. What then is the right, the proper, the godly response? What do we do in the face of evil? What do we do when the gloves come off and the world once again makes clear that they have no use for God or His people? You see, this is not new, the hostility of the world towards God. The hostility of the world towards His Word and His people. This, is, this hostility is as old as Genesis. Genesis and can be traced down on through history until the end of time, when Jesus Christ returns in victory and all the hostility will be crushed. This psalm we're looking at this morning is a psalm of David, a psalm in which David is asking for deliverance. We don't know the context for this psalm. That is, we don't know the exact circumstances of David's prayer. We don't know if it was during a time he was on the run from Saul Or if it was during the time he was living with his enemies because it was safer than being at home. Or if it was while his son was rebelling and he was again on the run. What we do know is that David was in trouble. Not, I can't find my keys and I'm going to be late to work trouble. Not, somebody said a mean thing to me and now my feelings are hurt trouble. Not even the government has made some unbelievably unwise decisions and my life has been wildly inconvenienced trouble. This was trouble too deep for words. All David could do was groan and cry out for the help from the Lord. He couldn't articulate the problem. His hurt was so deep. It was all he could do to cry out for help and wait and watch. And by the help of God himself, trust that God would indeed deliver him. Because of the length of the psalm, we'll take it in five stanzas, two or three verses at a time. and this setup gives us a contrast between God and the wicked and the righteous and the wicked. So those who are made righteous by God's covenant love and those who live by lies. In the end, the destiny and, and in the end, we'll see the destiny of each. We see this play out in this psalm. One commentator says of Psalm 5, This prayer is not only for protection from the wicked, but also a prayer for protection of becoming like them. So let's now look to the first stanza of Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David begins his prayer by asking for God to hear him. Because he expects an answer to his prayer. This might seem like an obvious point. That David expects an answer. That David prays in expectation of getting an answer. But this is actually an essential part of prayer, and even in these first few verses, we can learn a lot about how to pray. And here, I don't just mean the words to use, but the attitude with which we bring to, the attitude we bring to prayer. So the first thing to notice here is the urgency that David prays with. Look at the language he uses in the first three verses: "Give ear, consider my groaning, give attention." David here is crying out to God, pay attention to me, O Lord. The Lord is his only hope, and David prays like it. He recognizes that the Lord is king. This is the anointed king of Israel, putting himself in the proper place before God. David understands that though he is king of all around him, he is still under the rule and sovereignty of God, entirely dependent on Him. The second thing I want to draw our attention to is the persistence with which David prays. When he says in verse 3, O oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. This, the implication is that this is a morning-by-morning morning practice. David prays each morning. He brings his need before the Lord and will continue to do so until he gets his answer. This is consistent with what Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 18, the first seven verses. And he told them, this is Jesus, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city Who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Why does David continue to pray? Because he understands this truth. How much more will God listen to and provide for and give justice to to his people than a wicked, unrighteous human judge? George Mueller was the founder of several, several orphanages that saved and served thousands and thousands of young people in the 1800s in England. As he began his first orphanage, he resolved never to ask for donations, but to pray for all his needs and those of his children under his care. God heard and answered Mueller's prayers. He always had enough to feed and clothe and train the children sometimes well in advance, and sometimes they would sit down to eat with nothing on the table, praying that God would provide the meal. He always did. Mueller also persistently prayed for the salvation of two of his close friends. He prayed for them every day for more than 60 years. One of them was converted just before Mueller's death, probably when he preached his last sermon, and the other was converted within a year of his death. That is what persistence in prayer looks like. That is the way we should pray for the desires of our heart, morning by morning, trusting the Lord will answer for our good and for His glory. The last thing I want to point out before we have to move on is the expectation with which David prays. David prays expecting to be answered. In verse 3, David says, In the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David prays, and then he watches. He waits. He expects an answer. He is convinced that God will hear and answer him. This is not pride on the part of David as though he were worthy of an answer. He prays in faith, expecting an answer, because he trusts the Lord to work according to his promises. Do we pray this way? Do we pray really expecting an answer? Do we pray with urgency? Do we pray persistently? Do we do this because we are convinced that as sure as there is a nose on our face, God will answer us? Or do we go through the motions of prayer, praying without belief, without faith? In the New Testament, James tells tells us that this kind of prayer is useless. Let us, let me pray with expectation, with urgency, and with faith. We don't have to worry about using the exact right words as though God will not hear us if we use the wrong combination. In Psalm 5, David asks for God to consider his groaning. In the same way, in Romans 8, 26, Paul tells us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. To quote R.C. Sproul, our inarticulate longings to pray properly, are an indication to us that the indwelling Spirit is already helping us by interceding for us in our hearts, making requests that the Father will certainly hear. So, wanting to pray and wanting to pray rightly is a sign that the Holy Spirit is already at work in us and in our prayers. What what a gift of God to His people. Okay, we, we have to keep moving. In the next stanza, verses 4 through 6, David turns from speaking with only God in view to speaking with God and the wicked in view. Here, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This this right here is why David can call to the Lord with the confidence he does. It is in the character of God to hate wickedness. It is the character of God to righteously judge and then righteously condemn those who do evil. The end of that judgment is destruction. I want to be careful here and not go further than the text does. But I also want to go just as far as the text goes. So what do these verses reveal about what God thinks of evil and those who do evil? Joseph Carl helpfully notes that in these three verses, there's a progression, a step-by-step tracking of the Lord's alienation from the wicked, from general to specific sin, and increasing in the intensity of how God views sin. First, God does not delight in wickedness. He is not pleased with it in the least. The works of wickedness do not please him. Not one of them. Second, God will not have evil near him. God is not mixed with evil. There are no good and bad impulses brought together in God. God is all sinless and all perfection. Habakkuk 113 says of the Lord, You who are of pure You who are of pure eyes, then the see evil and cannot look at wrong. Which leads us to the third step in the progression, which is more specific. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. What does this mean? This is the particular sin of folks who refuse to stand in truth. To those, uh, it, it's those who are wise in their own eyes, yet foolish. In, they're, they're wise in their own eyes and foolish in reality. Those who say they have no need of God. They will not stand in the presence of the Lord. He will not hear them. He will cast them out. This is the beginning of the judgment, to be separated from God. Fourth, God hates evildoers. He hates them. We know this is true because in the end, when God justly judges and condemns the wicked, he throws them, not just their sin, the whole of them into hell. Matthew Henry says, The workers of iniquity are very foolish. Sin is folly, and sinners are the greatest of all fools. God hates nothing that he has made, but fools are of their own making, and those he hates. Wicked people hate God justly, therefore they are hated of him. And it will be their misery, and it will be their endless misery and ruin. Fifth, God will destroy those who speak lies. And sixth, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This is serious stuff. To abhor means to look at something with both hatred and disgust. This is the view God has toward both evil and those who practice evil. This should cause us to tremble. We are so sinful. In thoughts and words and actions, we, outside of Christ, fit all of these categories. We, outside of Christ, have no hope of standing before the holy, sin-hating God and not being destroyed. These verses are both a warning and a promise to all who will not repent. This is the fate of all who stand against the Lord. He will do what is just, and what is just is to destroy all wickedness. So, if, if it is true That God hates and will destroy evildoers. And it is true. What hope can anyone have? We've spent enough time in Romans these last several months to establish the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Where then? Is our hope? Is there anything that can save us from this destruction? And the answer is found in the next stanza, verses 7 and 8, when David again turns to have only God in view. Verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight, before me, God will cast the wicked out, but David here knows that his hope is not in himself. His confidence that he will enter the house of the Lord does not come from his own ability to please God with how he lives. His hope comes exclusively from the steadfast love of God. This phrase, the steadfast love of God, comes from the Hebrew word for covenant love. The love that God has bestowed onto his people This is the special, specific, sustaining love. The love that only God can give. So when David said, I will enter your house through the abundance of your steadfast love, he was not being arrogant or haughty. He was admitting his own guilt and unworthiness to come in on his own. And this is the only way that God allows anyone to come. In humility, by faith alone. Remember Jesus' parable? from the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, Jesus says two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner i tell you this man went down to himself down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted this is where hope is found in humble trust in god we shouldn't be humble about God. We should be humble about ourselves. Martin Luther said, fear comes from beholding the threats and fearful judgments of God. Even as being God in those whose sight, no one is clean. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is damnable. But hope comes from beholding the promises and the all-sweet mercies of God. In the primary place we see the mercy of God More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Through Christ, through the abundant love of Christ, we enter the Lord's house. We are reconciled with God. Are you reconciled with God? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you trusted that when Christ died on the cross, he died in your place? taking the wrath of God, the just hatred of your sin upon himself. If you have not, don't wait. The wrath of God remains on you. And as we have seen and will see again, if you refuse, if you do not repent and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, the only end of this this story is destruction and eternal death. But if you have trusted in Christ, you along with all other believers who have have been reconciled you have been made right with God through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ so now what do we do with this reconciliation we ask God for the grace to live in this reconciliation by faith which is what David prays if you're following along I'm in the second half of verse 7 I bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. David knows that he can't walk in righteousness on his own. The Lord must work in him. The Lord must go before. This is the first request that David has made in this prayer in the midst of trouble. He doesn't yet ask God to deal with his enemies, though he will. David's first concern is that he is righteous in the sight of God, even when his enemies surround him, especially when his enemies surround him. That should be our first concern as well. It should be our first impulse when we are in trouble to ask that God lead us in righteousness. For his name's sake, that we do not bring shame on his name in the face of our enemies. In the next verse, David turns his focus on the wicked again. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Verse 9 picks up where verse 6 left off. David continues in his description of the wicked. He says, For there is no truth in their mouths. They continually speak lies. This is, this is not only because they are liars, but because they are corrupt, sinful, rotten throughout. From top to bottom, inside out, not one part is untouched by sin. Their hearts are dead. Jesus says in verse six, or in Luke 6, verse 45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why there is no hope for anyone outside of Christ. We are all, every one of us, outside of Christ, rotten throughout. We are not all as bad as we could be, but there is not one part of us left untouched by sin. We must be made new. We must be made alive from the inside out in order order to please God. Otherwise, we bear our own guilt, and we cannot stand up under that kind of judgment. Look at what David says in verse 10. Make them bear their own guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David here is making clear that his enemies are actually rebelling against God and his commandments. David's enemies are coming against him because they hate God. And so David asks God to deal with them. James Boyce says, this is not a personal vendetta, but a concern for the rebellion against God. David asks God to condemn sin rather than justifying sinful behavior and to see see to it that the plans of the wicked fail and that they are banished while they are in such a state of rebellion. It is exactly the kind of prayer we should be able to pray when we see the evil effects of sin in our fallen world. We have to be careful here not to mix up ourselves and our with what we want and God and what he wants. Our enemies are only our enemies in as much as they are God's. What I'm trying to say here is that we must be careful not to think that just because someone questions us or our politics or our decisions about one thing or another that that makes them our enemy. It might just mean we're wrong or being a jerk. To be clear, I'm not talking about differing on the evils I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Evils like abortion and actual actual persecution and attacks on the family and rebellion against the creation order and the laws of God. We are to hate those evils as God hates them. This judgment that David calls for is just what will happen. The wicked will fall by their own counsels. The idiocy of their ideas and ideals cannot stand. As an economist once said, if something can't go on forever, it will stop. And a whole mess of things fall into this category. From sinful ideologies like critical race theory and actual racism, to Marxism and nationalism that lead to riots, to the whole array of the sexual revolution, to every single sin and departure from the perfect law of God, they cannot go on forever because God will judge them. God will deal with evil fully and finally this should give us so much hope. This should give us so much hope in this time of radical change in our country and around the world. During this time in which it seems like the very foundation of all we have ever known is, cr- is crumbling before our eyes. The whole world has gone insane. And we should find our hope in this, that our country, our business, our job, even our very lives are not our refuge. God is. Christian, we do not find our hope in this world or anything in this world. This world is passing away before it will be made new. Our hope, our joy, our refuge is found in God. And this is how David ends his prayer. Verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. David just piles up the ideas of safety in trouble in these verses. He illustrates the character of God and the people of God as those who take refuge in the one who provides the safety. David says, Let all who take refuge in you, all who turn to you, all who come to you for protection be joyful. Let them rejoice forever in you. Cover them, protect them, make a place for them that they might exalt you and glory in your name. Those who live under the shield of God can sing for joy. They can sing for joy forever because they are eternally safe in him. And he will bless them. He will cover them with his favor. That doesn't mean that this life, will be easy. No, it'll often be hard. When Martin Luther was on his way to Augsburg to, pre- to appear before a Catholic, a Catholic cardinal to answer for what they called his heresies, one of the cardinal's servants taunted him, asking, where will you find your shelter if your patron, the elector of Saxony, should desert you? Luther answered, under the shelter of heaven. This is what David was talking about. God was his greatest hope, and it should be ours too. But what does it mean that God will shelter his people? What does it mean that God will cover his people? What does it mean that God will bless the righteous? It means that he will surround those whom he loves with his favor. He will bless them with what is best. And what is best is God himself. God gives himself to those who love him. Because he loved them first. This is astounding. This should be fear and anxiety crushing. God gives us himself. There is no greater good than this. There is no greater good than the Lord himself. Money and fame and physical comfort and all the rest cannot hold a candle to the blazing sun of the goodness of God himself. It means that because of what Christ did, all things, all things work together for our good. Romans 8, 28 is a familiar verse. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This means that if we are in Christ, everything that happens to us is for our good. Sickness for our good. Joblessness for our for our good. Politicians who want to destroy us, for our good. Or as Paul would say in verse 35 of the same chapter, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all these are for our good because we overcome them through Christ. It doesn't mean that these things themselves are good, but that God is working them for our good. Because he is sovereign. He is not surprised. He ordained it. And he he will give us all we need to face whatever comes. We are promised just a few verses down from Romans 8, 28 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God did the hardest thing, that is not sparing His own Son, but giving Him up for us all to be tortured and killed and bear His just wrath against sin, how easy in comparison is it for Him to give us all that we need. All of it. Not all that we want, but all that we need for Romans eight twenty-eight to be true. That all things will be for our good and His glory. We know this. We can be sure of this that those who take refuge in God, that is, through Christ, by faith, will have everlasting, unending, ever-growing joy. Joy that we must sing about. We won't be able to help it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you as our only refuge. Everything else will fail us. We are surrounded with difficulties and dangers. You see us, and we pray that you would surround us with your favor as a shield. We put ourselves under your protection. We take refuge in Jesus. Let your grace be sufficient for us and your strength be made perfect in our weakness. We pray that you would, by your word through your spirit, root out all the sin and corruption from our hearts that we would be pleasing in your sight. We pray that you would lead us in your righteousness, that wherever you take us, we would be faithful in that place for your glory. Let us come to you by grace through faith and let us walk each day by the faith that your grace is enough. In Jesus' name.